Welcome to another episode of the Low Life Motherfucking Chopper Podcast. We got one hell of an episode for you guys tonight. We get into a lot with Tyler and Timmy Marr of Martian Machine Co. This one, if you've ever wondered what goes on with sandcasting, we are going to give you so much more information than you can even imagine. You're going to be able to have your own fucking foundry by the end of this one. Super, super talented dudes. Not just with the sandcasting stuff. They've got a ton of builds under their belt. We're going to get into some of their bikes. Um, Really just a full soup to nuts shop they got over there. From the machining stuff, they got the lathe, the mill, the sandcasting stuff. They do custom fabrication. A whole lot going on. So, super cool to have them on but before we jump into this interview let's go ahead and kick this thing off the way we always do with those motherfucking sponsors first up we got chop colt head on over to chopcult.com make yourself an account ask your questions on a forum where people actually give a fuck about choppers and won't just tell you to buy them annual and to put your front brake back on Scroll through those free classifieds to see if anybody's got those parts that you desperately need. And check out that motherfucking blog. Alright. Next up, we got ChopShit.com. Run by the one and only Chicken Rick. Hand-picked parts from builders across the world. This is your one-stop shop as well as the home of the low-life stickers. So if you want to grab yourself a sticker to throw on your bike to let everybody know you are that local low-life Get it from chopshit.com. Next, we got Broadway Customs out there in Englewood, Colorado. These guys are killing it from the bike nights to all the shop stuff. They got custom fabrication, CNC plasma cutting, 3D printing, and a whole lot more. Check them out on Instagram at broadway.customs.cycles. Next, we got Lowbrow Customs. Everything you need for the road ahead since 2004. This company has their hand in pretty much every motorcycle event across the country. These guys really know how to give back to that chopper community. Make sure you're following Lowbrow Customs on Instagram and get your next parts from lowbrowcustoms.com. Next up, we got Paco. 53 years in the game making custom parts for Harley Davidson motorcycles. From full frames to headlights, taillights, transmission components, and a whole lot more. Paco has it at Paco, that's P-A-U-G-H-C-O dot com. Next, we got the homie West at Custom Destruction making some of the dopest helmets in the motherfucking game for the same price as a stock lid. You pick the liner, you pick the shell color, you even pick the trim package. If you want that LX or that EX, just make sure you let Wes know when you place that order. And grab yourself one of the only helmets that makes the ugliest motherfucker look sexy. Next, we got your boy, yours truly, Ferro Fabrication. 
right here in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Hard tails, custom welding, repairs on cases. It's one of my favorite things to do. Tank modifications, all that jazz, whatever you need for your next project. Hit me up to let me know how I can help. You can reach me at Pharaoh Fabrication on Instagram. And then last but not least, we got Loctite's motherfucking chop shop for all your pinstriping needs. If you need some custom artwork done, hit up Loctite at Loctite's Chop Shop on Instagram. Alrighty. Before we jump right into this interview, though, you're going to be hearing this on a Friday, and we need to make sure that we get you guys these details. Let me pull this on up here. There is a swap meet going down. Got it right here. Okay. Tomorrow, which is Saturday, January 7th, 2023, brought to you by Easy Company and La Espada. This is the winter swap meet. It's going down at 576 Primrose Street. That's Haverhill, Massachusetts. It is going from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. I will be there. Loctite will be there. Dan from No Luck Paintworks. Rhino Resto will be there. We'll all be slinging some parts. Uh, I even have a box of parts to sell at the swap meet. So this is going to be a big one. Come by. See us. We'll have a little booth set up. So uh, hopefully we can catch you guys there. Again, vendor load-in. I didn't mention this. Vendor load-in, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Bring a table if you need one. The tables are not provided you know how it goes. So, again, Winter Swap Meet, Saturday, January 7th, a.k.a. tomorrow, 576 Primrose Street from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. $5 entry and 10 bucks for a vendor spot. Good deal. So, we got that out of the way. We got sponsors out of the way. We won't take up too much more of your guys' time. We'll just go ahead and jump right into this interview with Tyler and Timmy Marr. All right, guys, we are live on the line with Tyler and Timmy of Martian Machine. Welcome to the show, dudes. Hello. Hi. It is good to have you guys. We, uh, we were talking a little bit before we kicked the mics on. Chick and Rick put us in touch with uh, you guys, checked out your page, and realized that we've been seeing your points covers on Lowbrow Customs. So you guys have officially made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super cool to see it over there. So we're going to get into Martian Machine, all the cool shit you guys are doing with sand casting, the business side of it. And But before we get into all of that, let's just introduce you guys. Tell the people you know, where you're from and then how you got into bikes in the first place. You want to start? Yeah. Uh, name's Timmy Marr uh, from Wichita, Kansas. I think I got into motorcycles probably from my brother, Tyler, actually. He bought a Sportster brand new in 2008 when I was in middle school. And I thought it was cool. Got into motorcycles, had like a little Honda as my first bike. And uh, Tyler and my dad actually bought me a basket case 2001 Sportster as a high school graduation present. And I spent all summer and all my graduation money putting this thing together and that's what became my uh sportster with the trees painted on it oh that's rad so that there's some history behind the bike itself yeah yeah so that's like my first i don't know my first real bike i'd say 
my first Harley and first bike that I really went on some long trips with. And when you first put it together, how different did it look from the way it looked with a, uh, a tour pack and a fairing, which we'll get into. (laughs) So whenever I first, I just slapped it together. I just shoved the stock wiring harness in wherever it would fit. I just had a raw metal rusty frame. I primered the gas tank and just drew on it with Sharpie and had a stock front end. So it sat pretty, pretty low. And then I tore it apart and painted it uh, like the next year or that winter, actually. Tore, tore it apart and painted it. And then the tour pack and the fairing didn't come till a few years later. That's rad, dude. When, when you had it in primer, you got it uh, photographed by Michael Lichter. We were at Sturgis one year and it was the whole back page of Easy Rider magazine. was just sharpie drawn primary tank to-do list yeah (laughs) so that's pretty cool that's awesome so 2001 sporty so that's you're into the five speed at that point oh yeah yeah and 883 or 1200 it's a 1200 yeah 1200 custom gotcha so this thing i'm trying to i'm digging back through the page after it got painted, it looks like a completely different bike than you're describing, not just because of the paint, but also the front end grew some inches. Yeah. Um, yeah. Longer front end, bigger, beefy sissy bar that wouldn't snap ever. Cause I ended up snapping my sissy bar like four times. Cause it was just made out of three eighths. Yep. Oh, Cause at geez. the time I just like walked to, walked into a, a metal yard we had here local and I was like yeah that looks about right and no it wasn't right so yeah I really tore it apart and fixed everything that broke put it back together correctly I built a wiring harness from scratch that was like my first time doing wiring kind of fell in love with wiring after that so now I'm really into wiring motorcycles <laughs> I think it's fun <laughs> He's so into wiring that he had to put the fairing on there. So just for, to stuff more wires. I think that's what <laughs> like, yeah. I need a bigger challenge than the chopper can provide. Throw some speakers on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome though. This, uh, it's, it's a rare breed of person that gets into the wiring. It's usually just a giant obstacle in the way of people getting their bikes on the road. But some people do. What do you think it is that, that drew you into the process of wiring that most people can't stand. I mean, I guess that's it. You know, most people can't stand it. So. It's, it's cool, right? <laughs> that makes it unique and cool. It is. That's like kind of what we're trying to do here at Martian machine. We're trying to like fill the void. Like there's hardly any aftermarket for the, new fuel injected rubber mount sportsters nobody really wants to mess with them because they're afraid of wiring that's so true we're kind of trying to fill that niche and show people that you can make a cool bike and keep it all efi that is it that's a great concept actually because a lot of people once you get into efi they do get scared of it they get scared of the messing with the tank they don't want to deal with the wiring harness 
And yeah. I think people either want to cut the whole harness out and make a yeah, bare bones sure. one from scratch, or they don't want to do anything to it. So it is kind of cool. The idea of just modifying the, the, the bigger harness, but you have to be a wiring guy to do shit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we got a whole bunch of ideas for that. I mean, we haven't done any of them yet but we got a whole list of really neat ideas that we want to do like my brother has a panhead and he's going to convert it to efi we think oh shit dude that would be the wild boy stuff so, so if you got a fuel ejected bike and you rip all the fuel ejected off and all the wiring everything just to make a cool bare bones Sportster chopper, you basically strip 30 horsepower off the motor. So, what we're basically doing is making performance Sportster choppers. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, as you go backward with all of this stuff, you're going to lose that performance. And it's definitely, there's not a lot of people in that game. If you're trying to find that niche, that is definitely a niche. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have rubber mount sportsters and they're like, oh, well, I want to customize it. So I think I'm just going to buy a carbureted sportster and get rid of this fuel injected one. <laughs> oh, dude, I can't tell you how many people write in. They're like, so I got this rubber mount. And I'm like, I don't even know what to tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Give them our number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, there's somebody that just wrote in and I'm blanking on the name and I hope that he's listening because he just wrote to me about a rubber mount and he was looking to hardtail it and it seemed like it was a real nightmare. So hopefully that guy reaches out to you guys to say, have you done this? How can you help? All that good stuff. Yeah, that's another thing we're working on right now. Actually, we just put a rubber mount frame in the jig and we're going to develop our own rubber mount hardtail that actually looks good. Hell yeah. That's what we fucking, that's what the world needs. Was Josh Steel yeah. <laughs> City, his was a rubber mount, right, Loctite? Because um, I think, remember, I remember he made that, that massive, solid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I'm pretty sure that was to to get rid of the fact that it was rubber mount. So you have to either yeah. be a blacksmith or a really talented fabricator to not sell your rubber mount Sportster. <laughs> yeah. Is that the guy that made that twisted? It is, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. And that was, he cut everything out of that frame except for that lower section where the rubber mount goes in. So that just goes to show the lengths that people will go to. Yeah. To that frame. Yeah, to he work. kept that, that yeah. back rear frame cradle, that motor mount is yes. ugly in our opinion. So that's yeah, what we're trying yeah. to yeah. If you're able to get rid of that, I think you'd sell a million of whatever you were making because so many. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I think once uh, people see our hardtail, they're going to be like, oh man, it's so simple. Why didn't we think of that? Right. And a lot of times I think that's what it is. Everybody else is so busy selling shovelhead hardtails and just making the same ones that nobody wants to reinvent the wheel. And there are riches in the niches, as they say. So hopefully you guys can put something like that out there. There's 19 years 
19 model years for that sportster that uh, nobody really makes any parts for. Yeah, it's like 04 to 2022. Holy shit. When you when you lay it out like that, it's funny how it's funny that it doesn't exist, right? Yeah, so there's <laughs> all these sportsters out there that nobody really wants to customize. Just sell them. <laughs> yeah. We're buying so them. So we're we're buying them. And we're gonna make them cool. That'd be awesome, especially if you were able to do uh to do a couple, sell the whole frame. You know, where the person can just like, hey, we did it. It's modified. Here's the title in the frame. I bet that would fly off the shelf. Uh, there's a little more to it than that. You have to become a dealership and some other stuff. But- yeah, to sell a complete frame. And the, the necks on these rubber mount bikes are cast steel. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. So you can't quite just chop them off and weld it onto a new frame because they're like hollow. On the inside. Gotcha. Yeah, that would really gotta go. Unfortunately, we pretty much gotta go the route of the weld on DIY hardtail. Yeah, that's true. If if you're able to do it that way and that's easier, then that's definitely the move. But I'm you don't have any pictures of it, right? Until you guys have put it out. You're no just pictures in my brain. We're literally working on it right now. That's Pictures awesome. that we've drawn on a whiteboard. <laughs> right. Well, we'll be stoked to see it, man. That'd be definitely something to look forward to. 19 model years. And, you know, I actually had the same issue with my, uh, I have an Evo Big Twin, uh, 94. And I had a hell of a time finding a hardtail that would work for that. And I had to end up using a shovelhead one and modifying the, that hardtail just to fit the Evo Sportster or excuse me, the Evo Big Twin. And it's another one of those things where just a huge market and nobody makes it. Yeah, we have a... We got a couple of them. Yeah, my brother just picked up a Dyna on the cheap, and it's kind of a weird year that has all the oil stored under the transmission. So it's like a 96 or something. What year it is. Evo Dyna. But yeah, it's it's... It's a weird year, so I feel like there's not any hardtail that would fit that thing. Yeah, and the Dynas were tricky, too, because those have square backbones. Yeah. Whereas the yeah. mine is a soft tail, which fortunately, it basically looks like a shovel head frame from the seat post forward. It's got the regular backbone, so it's easier to work with. Uh, the Dynas, man, I don't know what somebody would do. You'd have to cut that whole backbone out to make that feasible. Yeah. That's a that's a deep endeavor. So let's uh let's backtrack for a second here too. It seems like we got uh we got Timmy's story. Tyler, do you want to jump in and give us your story? Sure. Um where do I start? The very beginning. I uh His dad's Kawasaki. I grew up uh riding dirt bikes and stuff like that. And then my dad had this KZ seven fifty and I started riding that very young, and I actually got my motorcycle license the day after I turned 16, but I hadn't taken driver's ed yet. So I, at one point in time, had a driver's license that only had a Class M. I couldn't drive a car, but I could drive a motorcycle. That's wild, dude. I've been riding motorcycles my whole life. Um 
that led or I grew up in drag racing and cars, custom cars, our whole side of the family is big in the custom car culture and uh, restoring like street rides and stuff like that. Our dad had like 16 different cars. Um, so pop rides, cars, motorcycles were really big. I wasn't big into Harleys quite yet. Um, more like street bikes and things like that. Then I started working in aircraft. So I was building airplanes, uh, a lot of composite stuff. Yeah. Uh, like carbon, carbon fiber, ailerons, elevators, major components for airplanes. And then was making a lot of money, reinvested that into housing. So started buying rental properties, flipping houses, things like that. I really enjoyed that. When I got laid off, I became my own boss, became a general contractor, ran my own company for about nine years. And then that was just Damn. kind of beating me down. Like I wasn't having fun anymore. It was just a day-to-day -day job. I hated it. But we were using all our vacation time to go to these motorcycle events. Now, at this time, my brother is big into Harleys. And if I have a question about a Harley, I just ask him because he knows everything about Harleys at this point. <laughs> and it's like, how do we make a living going to motorcycle ships? So we started like fabricating some stuff for a few years and started building our own custom stuff. And it wasn't until we went to a couple of different shows where people, big companies were like, when are you gonna start making this stuff so we can steal it? Kind of as a joke. I was like, yeah. all right, well, yeah. the uh, people seem to really want this stuff. So why don't we try to make it for people? So we started Martian Machine I folded up my company in what, 2018, I think. So it was Martian Machine kind of part-time for about a year. Then COVID happened. We built out a big shop, got a big space to work and expand. And it wasn't until 2021, I think, October 21, we launched our website. What was it? Yeah, 21. October 21, we launched our website, and then that whole year has just been Martian Machine nonstop, full-time. That's awesome. So you guys work together. Uh, is it just the two of you running it? And my wife. But yeah, us in the shop. Yeah. Building all the things. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We came on full-time last May, I think. Yeah, so he's been here almost a year, full-time. That's awesome. And you guys have quite a bit on the website. For the people listening, it's martianmachineco.com. And you guys got points covers, bars, pegs. Um, it's, a, it's a good run of products. That was just our first year run. We've got a lot of new stuff coming out. Um. Lowbrow is carrying a couple parts that we haven't even officially launched yet. Some kicker pedals, things like that. 
and we've oh, got that's a cool. lot more. We've got a lot more in the works. I'm excited. Yeah, we do the kicker pedals. <laughs> yeah, we do a lot of uh, like we did a couple things that we only do uh, like in person, like at shows. So my brother casted up these little like little mini panhead rocker boxes. Yep. And then I don't know. We're just kind of trying to sell them as like trinket trays, ash trays, you know, whatever. Just like a little, a little teeny tiny panhead bowl. But that was something that we didn't really want to produce and put on our website because we're like we're a motorcycle parts company, not really a a trinket tray company. But but yeah, I mean, we got a lot of cool ideas and. You could be both. You could be a tr- you could do trinkets and motorcycle stuff. I'm actually yeah. looking. I'm like that's pretty sick, dude. Yeah, I mean we we do do both, but I mean I don't think it's something that uh, lowbrow would want to pick up or anything like that. It's not something that I'd want to give them because I don't like making them all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. You're like I don't want to make a hundred of these. Loctite would yeah. be excited to see that you have this. Uh, it's like a basically the Snap On logo, but it says Strap On. And it's yeah, made yeah. the same font. You can slap it right we on somebody's toolbox. <laughs> Absolutely love it. So we had this funny story. Uh, the first like big batch I made, we put them on all our toolboxes, and it, it's nothing new. It's nothing that I really created. Like there are people that make stickers that say that stuff, but there's a little dick in the S where strap or snap on has a wrench. I see it. Yeah. <laughs> The little meaner part of it always looked weird to me. So I fixed that and then 3D modeled my own, not my own dick, my own strap on badge. And we uh, 3D print all our bags. So I print that out and I started casting them up. And we took them to Texas Fandango. And this guy shows up. And he's like, why would you have these in aluminum? Like, why would you make these? And I was like, oh, they're they're cool. And he's like, I was a snap-on guy for 25 years, had my own trap and everything, and everybody always called me the strap-on man. So he's like, this is so funny. <laughs> and he's talking about it, and he's like, I still don't get why you would make these. He's like, you could just buy these off the snap-on truck. Like, what? no one can tell that it's aluminum just by looking at it, it looks just like a plastic one. I was like, did you even read it? And then he had already bought it and paid for it, and he's talking to us for about five minutes, holding it in his hand, and then he finally looked down and read it and realized that it said scrap on So it's just that brand recognition. Oh, wow, this he didn't guy, even notice. This guy had been a snap-on dealer for 25 years, picked it up and bought one just because he thought it was cool, but had no idea that it said strap-on. That's the guy that was fixing your tools. Just so everybody knows. <laughs> That's the guy you were handing your delicate tools back it's to. Just, like, I'll look it over. Yeah. It's just brand recognition. He saw it, recognized it as a snap-on logo. It was aluminum. He bought it. And then he joked about how people called him the strap-on man, but his story wasn't really making sense, like as far as like recognizing that he bought a strap-on bag. That is hysterical, dude. And it, you know what's funny too is that somebody would buy it 
and then talk shit about like, why would you, why would you make it? But it's like, well, you're, you're buying it right now. That's why I made it. <laughs> well, then once he realized that he bought another one. Oh, did he really? Since then, yeah. And then ever since then, we've just been buying, we throw them on the website. We've had people, uh, like whole shops. Uh, there's a motorcycle dealership here in town in Wichita that has them all in there. So they'll call up and they'll order like eight of them. And they'll put them on every toolbox in there. Dude, that is fantastic. That's a good market, boys. That's definitely, that's a hit. It's just a fun little thing. We actually ran them today. So we got a bunch of orders over the new year and through Christmas that we're trying to fill up. I love it. So being that we're talking about this right now, let's get into this a little bit. You guys do sand casting which is something Correct. that I feel like not a lot of people understand what that process is and how it works. So why don't we start from the beginning? How did you, what was the first time you ever decided you were going to sand cast something and then just kind of take me through it from there? I sand cast for the first time in high school. Uh, we had a little Votech metal shop and we had to make these clocks that we sold for like a fundraiser. So wood shop made the wood bases and um, metal shop made the little scrolls. And at one point we had a whole foundry and we cast up these little heads that went on there. So that was the first experience I had in sand casting. Then I built a little foundry many years ago and just kind of experimented it with it like a hobby on the back porch and just tried making some stuff and then when Martian Machine kind of started picking up it's like I've got all these ideas that I could cast but I'm not really a pattern maker pattern making is a whole nother thing so I went up to Michigan and hung out with Crafty Bee up in Michigan, yep. took a class and basically tried to learn everything I could about pattern making from him because he was a tool and die maker, pattern maker for a long time. So I learned everything I could about making patterns, came home, bought a 3D printer, and now I take all the knowledge I have about pattern making, but I just do it digitally and then can just you, 3D print. Can you print back that up? Back that up one step, just to explain like what it is, what do you mean what you mean by pattern making? Like what is a, a pattern? So are you familiar with a Bridgeport Mill? Yeah. A Bridgeport Mill was made by a pattern maker out of wood. So a guy carved, cut, and glued wood together, oversized because metal shrinks when it cools. So he made that Bridgeport mill out of wood and then it was cast in iron. No so shit. The Bridgeport mills that you're familiar with are all sand cast iron. And that's fucking iron, wild. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah that's so, wild to think about. I'm glad we backed up on this part because this is, I, I don't know if everybody understood Pat, like that's how this all works. <laughs> So anything that you identify as cast iron, that is made in a sand cast form uh, off of a wooden pattern. So a pattern maker makes the wooden pattern. 
I and see. at one okay. point it was the highest paid, most skilled profession in the nation. Oh, I bet that's got to be a, a tricky thing to get good at. So if you ever look at like an old piece of machinery that's got some cast parts on it, they'll have little letters and things on them. Those were all like little wood letters that were carved and glued on by a pattern maker. Wow. That's a tough job. So, so you, okay. So now it makes sense. You took this class to learn mm-hmm. everything you could about how to do that. And now I just do all of that in a 3d form on the computer with fusion. So I build a 3d model, I build a 3d pattern, and then I just 3d print it. And so you can, so I don't have to that. make anything out of wood. Well, that's awesome. Cause wood's wicked expensive these days. <laughs> you can't be fucking around making everything out of million dollar two by fours. So you can do this on a 3D printer. I mean, it doesn't melt it, huh? No. Well, we'll get to that. But it's just <laughs> it's it's just a pattern. So once I have a pattern, um I don't know, how would I explain it? Uh, imagine like a baseball. Yep. If you cut a baseball in half, now you have two halves of a ball. Yep. Now you have the top half and a bottom half. So you put the top half of the ball in a box, you fill it with sand, you pack in the sand, and you do the same with the bottom. When you put the two together, you have a baseball inside of two halves of sand. Now if you remove the baseball you have an empty void that's baseball shaped. Oh, I see what you're saying. Pour metal into. Right. So you're not actually pouring it onto this pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So our 3D printed parts would absolutely melt if metal poured into them. But all we're using it is to create a void in the sand that allows metal to flow into. So we're creating a negative space. Do we put the pattern in? We put the pattern in uh, sand. And then we take the pattern out and then right. pour molten aluminum into the void. Got it. Yes, I do remember seeing so, a video about this now. So so you've just got that void that gets filled up with the molten metal. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be like, so yeah, that's that's what sand casting is. And then there's a whole bunch of other types like lost wax casting. That's what a lot of people more. think of. You know, you put the thing in there and then you pour hot metal in it and it melts the wax and fills up the void or there's investment casting where you like inject hot metal but it i don't know it requires a bunch of investment crazy we 3d print something we coat it in an investment which is like a plaster of paris like a sheetrock type of compound and sand yep and then you heat it up and you burn out your pattern so Oh, your pattern is lost. And now you have an empty void, a shell that you can pour into. And then you chip off the exterior. God. With the sand casting that we do, we can use the same pattern over and over and over and over and over again. And we can just knock molds out. So we can make a hundred ignition covers in one day. Damn, that's wild. Yeah, I and I was curious about that distinction too, because I remember the first time I heard about investment casting. I was buying a Ruger revolver and they, they all, they said all over their website, like they use investment casting to make all these parts. And I was like, 
uh-huh. is investment because it's just expensive as fuck. Because it's gonna. <laughs> it certainly is an investment when it's six hundred dollars. Got it. So it's just That's, a different type of. It's of, a different process. It's a different yeah. type of casting. So the big ones would be investment and sandcast. Got it. And so that's what you guys are doing is the sand casting. So what do you use to uh, to get the – you're making it out of aluminum, you said, or is it steel? Aluminum. So we do aluminum, brass, and bronze. Um, we don't do any steel. Steel requires a lot higher melting temperature, which we could probably reach, but it's terrifying. It's like <laughs> you're pouring you – need, you need the whole – uh, reflective space suit. Oh shit! Yeah, you don't want to. You mess know, with to to do steel because holding something that's twenty six hundred twenty three twenty three twenty six upwards of three thousand mm-hmm. degrees. You know, just the heat radiating off of that will melt the pants <laughs> off of you. You know, that's fucking wild. So yeah, we don't don't need to be doing all of that. Plus, I'm sure people don't need it to be any heavier than it has to be. That's another yeah. big thing. Picking up a crucible full of steel is completely different than picking up one full of aluminum. And the crucible is like the bowl, right? Correct. So the foundry is the the, oven. the heater. The heater, the oven is called yeah. a foundry. A lot of people think it's a forge. A forge is typically an open-ended horizontal uh oven for heating up metal right so a foundry is more of a circular chamber that a crucible sits in and the crucible is just a bucket that you put your metal in and melt it down and then you pick that up out and pour that into your your flask got it and crucible sounds way better than bucket so i would go with that too yeah crucible (laughs) just trying to keep it simple yeah, and it keep it professional. You know, this is my crucible. It's not just a bucket. It's the crucible. And then you pour it into... So the fat, the flask is, is what's holding the sand, right? The, the flask is the box. And right. you have two parts of a flask. You have a coat and a drag, a top and a bottom. So there's a lot of science that goes into that as far as like how much of your pattern is top and bottom. And then there's things like draft everything has to have a draft or angle so that it releases from the sand. Cause if you think about shoving your fist down into a beach, um, you have to be able to pull your fist out. So if you bury your fist in sand, you won't be able to pull it out clean, but you could probably do half your hand and get like some good, like knuckle impressions in it. So then you have to have enough angle in the other half to be able to release clean without breaking the sand apart. I see. Now with points covers, pretty straightforward, right? Cause then you don't have, it'll pretty much always come out. Yep. Points covers are all done in the top. So we pour metal into the bottom part of the mold and it fills up and then flows across and then fills up the cover, but they're all just flat backed. So everything is drafted on one face to come out the bottom. Got it. So only so the are, bottom piece has the hole in it or the, the, uh, the void. Yep. 
So how does how do you pour it in? Where's the hole that you actually pour the metal through? You have to you have to cut that. So then then you have gates, runners, and sprues. I love it too. This so, is getting deeper and deeper. This is so much <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so if we go back to the baseball analogy, we have a baseball that's cut in half and it's packed into some dirt, and we have a top half and a bottom half. I have to get metal to flow into it so i would cut a sprue and the sprue is the actual hole that runs down deep inside the box that you pour the metal into then that sprue connects to a runner and that runner moves the metal in a less turbulent fashion i guess it controls the flow so we try to slow it down we try to slow it down and get it as less turbulent as possible, nice, smooth flow. And then as that fills up, it runs through a gate. And the gate is just a little flat open chamber that allows the metal to actually flow in and fill up this baseball. Boy, I'm starting to see why a lot of people don't do this. This is a very detailed <laughs> process you got to go through to get all these elements to work properly huh it's all a hundred percent trial and error pretty much God, especially it. when we're like we well we just got a new piece of equipment that packs the sand for us that tyler's kind of been messing around with just today actually is the first time he's used it but we used to pack all the sand down by hand with basically a hammer and you know I pack sand differently than he packs sand and so you know you pack something up and then pick it up and it, it can fall apart oh shit yeah so, so it's like whoops try again so we just went to uh Topeka the capital here in Kansas mm-hmm. we went up to Topeka and bought this machine it's called the squeeze jolt i was gonna ask and, you the name because everything else had a fun name so far yeah so this is called a <laughs> this is called a squeeze jolt and i would guess that it has milwaukee printed on the side of it but i'm not sure if it's an osb or a milwaukee foundry tool but it was it was probably manufactured in the early 40s Oh, wow. And all the airlines were shot on it. Um, We replaced all the airlines over the last week or so and got it kind of moving. But now it's fully operational. I used it uh, over a dozen times today. Works perfect. So instead of hand packing everything, we literally just throw sand in a box, swing a head over and hit a button. And it squeezes it with, I don't know, 10,000 pounds of force. And even force, and then, right? So it's like even force. Yep. And then you just scrape the top off, flip it over, fill it up with sand. And then the jolt is like a, a hammering effect. So it, the table will actually jump up about four inches and slam down. So it'll shake all the sand right into the bottom and it'll actually pack itself before you squeeze it. Wow, dude. That is fucking. How big is this contraption? Well, it's about 
don't know. It's about as big as a time machine. It's about yeah. a big thing. Five, five feet tall, three feet wide, probably three by three by five feet tall, but it weighs about 2,500 pounds. It's all cast iron, big giant pneumatic cylinders. It's all pneumatic operated. It kind of looks like one of those uh, power hammers that Jesse James uses. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you got like big blue basically in the shop. Now. It's a much smaller version of that. But yeah. So the wild part, based on what you told me earlier, is that somebody probably carved this thing out of fucking wood to make this and then had to pack the sand by hand because they didn't have the machine yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. I'm going to think about wild. that every time I see a machine now. I'm going to be like, somebody cut this. Somebody cut this out of wood with a little whittling knife, probably. And think about something that I think about all the time is that a lathe is the only piece of equipment that can make itself a mill. No, a lathe, not a mill. Is it? Because I thought it was a mill. Yeah, so in theory, you can buy a small lathe and then make a bigger lathe and a bigger lathe and a bigger lathe. I guess, I mean, it is a lot of rounded parts. But you have to imagine you'd need some, I don't know. Either way, it, it's definitely, I'm sure this saves a ton of time. And now you're not having to deal with, oh, the sand fell apart today. Yeah, it's insane, actually. So I was in the shop today just watching Tyler work. And he would, like, ram up some sand and then kind of bring it over to this machine. And he'd stomp on it, like, for the first time. And he would just be like, oh, my God, like, what the heck? It only took one squeeze instead of in there hammering it by hand. So it's going to speed up our production a lot. Now you guys could do the trinket trays for lowbrow. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It's going to be so fast. Speed them up a lot. No, that's awesome. So, so once you get all the stuff cut you know, or, or packed, You've got, actually, wait a minute. Once that thing packs the sand, then you got to do all the holes, right? Yep. So then you, uh, well, like, for instance, today I made a pattern board for our strap-on badges. So what I used to do is I would cut the runner and the gate after the fact. Yep. So I would I would carve it out of the sand and it was kind of dirty and turbulent, but you know, for what it is, it doesn't really matter if it's got a couple little voids in it. It's not structural. And we powder coat them and just polish the faces anyway. So it doesn't matter if there's a few little defects in it. But sure. today with this new squeeze press, I made a pattern board which had a runner and a gate already on it. So I just took a 3D printed part, placed it on there, squeeze it, flip it over. It's all done. All I have to do is cut a hole. So I would pack all the sand, cut the hole, open it up, remove my plastic pattern and a wood board, and then put it back together and pour metal into it. And I did. Oh, I see. So you build that into the actual. So that's like essentially the baseball has the has the hole attached to yep. it now. So the baseball yeah. would have the hole, the gate, and the runner all attached on like a board. And it doesn't really matter how thick the board is because the two halves go back together the same way. Right. Where, where do you guys get the metal? Like, what are you melting down? Wheels. <laughs> and then 
We have a buddy that owns a mechanic shop, auto mechanic shop, and yeah. he brings us water pumps and Atlas transmission parts. And he just brings us all this scrap aluminum, cast aluminum all the time um, for different things like the ashtrays that aren't really structural. We use a lot of 6061, just cheap scrap aluminum. Yep. And we have tons of it. So, so we just melt that down and. The 6061 is less structural than the cast stuff, you're saying? Correct. Well, it gets brittle. No, you got it backwards. Oh, I was going to say, because usually 6061 is what all the fabricators want to use. They love the 6061. Yeah, 6061 is, it bends before it snaps. The cast stuff will snap. So our, right. uh, if we make cast flip pegs, like our penis pegs that we make, they're made out of 6061. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. But all of our, uh, all of our, I mean, most of our ignition covers and stuff like that are made out of the cast alloy because they're harder and we've found out that they flow better. Yeah. So we started out doing only 6061 because uh, at my old job, I would only fabricate aluminum stuff and we would throw away so much scrap and they pretty much didn't care if I would just bring home a backpack full of aluminum scrap, you know, because they don't care. They sell entire dumpsters full of just scrap material. So right. I have a whole bunch of like eighth inch by one inch 6061 flat strap, and I just bring home a brick of it. <laughs> I try to get a heavy backpack. Yeah, and so <laughs> we still have a lot, like an infinite amount of 6061, but we've kind of found out that there's a reason why people cast out of this like harder cast alloy because it seems to flow a lot better. It has a higher silicon content. So it flows better and it doesn't oxidize as much. And it's it's harder, but it's a little more brittle. Gotcha. Yeah, which makes sense because I guess that's you know, castings will crack more yeah. often than like 6061. Like you said, it'll just it'll bend, it'll deform before it cracks. But your we're talking about 6061 in a billet form. Uh, when you melt it, you change the structure of that form. It's no longer 6061. It takes on different properties of a cast oh, alloy. Okay. It's really soft. Gotcha. That's true. Yeah, because you're super, super heating it. It's also funny that this process, aluminum is the easy one to use, and steel is is the more difficult one whereas with welding it's very cheap to buy a welder that'll weld steel but to do aluminum is, is a little more under a little more understanding is required and, and the machine has to have more capabilities steel is actually probably easier to cast than aluminum but you have to have the equipment to do it that's the tricky part you just got to deal with so much more heat yeah yeah, I was going to ask about the heat. When you're heating this stuff up, is it like there's a magic temperature? And if you go too far, it like compromises it? Or is it just like, yeah, yes. when it's molten for it? No, nope. I it, think you our, can superheat it. I think our foundry, what we got going now, like the, the crucible is made out of graphite. Pencil lid. 
Yeah, like pencil lead. So it's a graphite bowl with like a spout like in it already. So it's easy to pour and stuff, but whatever, I don't know what that, what the melting point of graphite is, but I don't think our uh, foundry or our, our, yeah, I don't think our foundry could melt itself down if we tried. I built it to no, 2,500 I mean like degrees. Like with the metal though, can you heat it too much? Yes. So like when you pour yeah. it, it, it ends up being way more brittle than it should be? So when you get it hotter, it, it tends to oxidize and absorb oxygen. So the molecules uh, so open up and they just start grabbing oxygen and then you get a lot of porosity in your part. Right. So you, there's a sweet spot. I guess it's, yeah, boiling point versus melting point. Yeah. Yeah, aluminum is tricky with that because they, they have that, I don't know how much it plays in with, with the sand casting um, in the foundry versus when you're welding it, but you've got the oxide layer on the top and then the actual aluminum itself underneath. And that's always why it's, it makes it trickier to weld it. But I don't know if that, does that even have anything to do with when you're just it, melting the whole thing? It does. If you melt it down and you pour it into a mold, you, you can get a lot of oxide layer. Like you, every part has an oxide layer when you take it out of the sand. Right. So the aluminum oxidizes against the dirt and we use an oil bonded dirt. So there's actually oil right on the surface. So it creates its own layer, kind of like a barrier. almost like a Leiden frost effect that allows the the metal to flow smoothly across the sand. Fuck, dude, there's so much science in this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just sound like, all right, cool. If you can like carve some soap and like make an imprint in the sand and pour some metal in it, you're good to go. That's yeah, that's I mean, the gist of it, yeah. I think that's yeah. what uh, jewelry makers do, you know? Jewelry making is, I guess it's on a lot teeny tiny scale, you know? It's, it's hard to carve these little intricate things, but silver is fairly easy to melt. Yeah, so that's I think jewelry making is like, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> not to discredit people that make jewelry, but it's kind of easy compared to whenever like you step it up things. to this bigger scale stuff. And yeah, we <laughs> yeah. haven't even tried steel, but yeah, once you get bigger and hotter, you have to get bigger and more capable stuff. And I don't know, a lot more goes into it. I don't know. The two of you wearing the foil suits with the helmets would be a great Martian machine <laughs> code. <laughs> it would. And I think we'll get to that point eventually. But man, those <laughs> we've looked at even getting the foil gloves and they are so expensive. Uh, give me the numbers. How much is how much are these foil gloves? Man, I don't even know. Tyler, do you know? The last one we looked up were eight hundred dollars for a pair. Eight hundred dollars oh for a pair. God. <laughs> That's not holy fuck. So what are you using now? Just like some welding gloves or like what? He uses TIG welding, Tillman no. TIG welding gloves. They're not with, TIG welding gloves. With, with MIG welding gloves over the top. They are the highest temperature rated gloves I could find. And you could still burn your hands. We don't I burn our say, hands much on aluminum. Hot. Well, like the crazy thing is, is that the, when you're pouring that, what, what temperature do you think it is? It's about 1,700, 1,800 degrees. Holy fuck. But the 
I'm pulling out, um, what would I say? Probably 15 pounds of aluminum at a time in a crucible that's glowing red hot. So I have this giant, it's about as big as like a one gallon paint can, maybe bigger. Okay. So it's a one gallon. You got like those special like tongs that like grab it, like I've seen on YouTube and shit. Yeah. Yeah. So we have all that and you're about two feet away from it, but you have to pour it. And we typically pour on the ground or near the ground. And just that temperature, the radiant heat will start to melt the toes on your boots. Wow. Dude, so I, I know this has nothing to do with making like penis bags and shit, but has everything to <laughs> I, do with it. I seen uh, this thing on YouTube and this guy, like he did all like this kind of stuff. And so he melted down a bunch, I think it was aluminum, and dumped it down an ant hole. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, and then dug it up, and it's fucking insane. Yeah. <laughs> you guys should do that live on Instagram so I can watch it, because that was super we, I think we should, too, because I've got a big-ass fire ant. Yes, <laughs> dump it down the fire ant hole. <laughs> Yeah, I've, like, kicked that thing and dug at it, and they will not go away. So I know it's a big one in my backyard, so we've considered it. <laughs> yeah, that would be wild. There's, there's a lot of people on YouTube that do a lot of sand casting. So if anyone wants any, like, or if anyone's curious about how it works, you can just Google it, and there's, like, 10 different makers that actually make stuff. Yeah, that's how good. But when you guys do like the kicker pedals, is that cast as well? Yep. Nice. So, yeah, those barefoot kicker pedals, we haven't even put them on our website yet. Yeah, I was just looking for them when you started talking about them in the beginning of the episode. Yeah, we're we're super stoked about them. (laughs) And uh, like, I'm really excited about them. And I can't believe nobody's done this before. But yeah, I'm super proud of this idea. But we're having trouble sourcing the shafts. And so uh, we're like, we don't want to sell a ton of them right now because we can't really make very many of them right now. Right. We make them one at a time, but uh, we have connections with a machine shop here in Wichita that uh, we'll make them. I was for gonna say, us. That's, something you could just, that's something you could just spin up on a lathe, right? It's yeah, like, we could, but I mean, or like, we use like a fucking. Like, Grade eight bolt or something. <laughs> right. We're just gonna outsource it to a machine shop here in town that we've worked with in the past. Fuck yeah! Are you ever gonna offer like custom sh- like shit? Where, like somebody can like call you and be like, "Yeah, I want a dick kicker pedal." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything's just yeah. So I don't want a dick kicker pedal, but I definitely want a unicorn head kicker pedal. Someone already made that. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> well, whoever that is, fuck that guy. Well, then, there was that, uh, that guy that made those tombstone-shaped kicker pedals, and one of them had a unicorn on it. What about a unicorn um, head, and instead of, like, the little horn, it's a dick? <laughs> I, I bet nobody's done that, that uh, yet. <laughs> I can tell you that Eric Allard, FNA Cycles out of Florida... He has that crazy Ironhead Sportster that's like 20 up in the frame and a giant front end. I don't know. It's it's like crazy Japanese style, but he has one of those unicorn kicker pedals on it. No shit. Not sure who made it, but that's a oh, start. Dude. 
Damn, that's, I did not um, expect I mean, someone honestly, to already there, be there. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things like that where we're like, I know somebody else made this in the past, but now they don't. And yeah. so, like, I don't know, should we make it for someone? Yeah, you know. definitely like, should. I also want like a a nice like, I want like a brass knuckle kicker pedal that comes off of like a quick disconnect pin. That would be. I don't. I know brass knuckle kicker pedals have been done. I think you can find them. Somebody like in Indonesia makes them and put them on. No, no I don't want one from Indonesia. I yeah, want custom ones. Uh, nobody has a quick disconnect. That's pretty unique. That's See that cool. right there. That's a million dollar idea for you. I don't want any royalties. <laughs> I just want one kicker pedal. <laughs> but we do uh, uh, custom stuff for a lot of different companies. Um, they'll hit us up for sand casting and custom ignition covers. So we make. As far as sand casting goes, we make a lot of parts for some other companies. We've done some keychains for some clubs. Um, oh, we did uh, points covers for heavy. Yeah, we make all the heavy's ignition covers. We've That's done awesome. some machine gun stuff for some armories here in town. Oh damn! Oh, what did you do? What did you do for the machine guns? Uh, little grits and things like that. Nice. That's awesome. And other things. People that well, live near you guys must be so stoked that somebody who does this lives near them. Oh, yeah. And it's all just custom fabrication, too. So, uh, like, handrails, like, anything. So, like, a guy just brought us, like, a boat motor that he bought at an estate sale. And he's like, I really want to display this vintage boat motor, but I don't have a stand. So can you make me a stand? We're like, absolutely. So we just whip up a stand and Sick. he takes it home. And he's super happy. So. Oh, that's awesome. So you guys do it's not, general fabrication. It's not, yeah. Just metal fabrication. We built some signs. That's the company right there. That's it. Timmy's looking up the unicorn kicker pedals. <laughs> he's found them. But uh, them. we've done some signs for some vintage stores here in town. Oh, nice. Um, no, I found one on eBay. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's the company that made them, but there's one on eBay right now. I see the one you're talking about. It's like a looks like a tombstone, and it's got a unicorn. Yep. Yeah, that's the one. That's pretty rad too. Yeah, I like that. Loctite. I can't believe somebody has done this. Yeah, I'm fucking devastated. <laughs> That's like, like uh, I don't know. Like, there's so many. I mean, there's. There, I feel like there's only like six main garage dudes that are doing sand casting, you know. But like, we're we're trying to not step on any toes. So people will ask us like, "Oh, hey, can you do this?" Or we'll be like, "Yeah." we can but this guy already does it so you know hit him up like we try to do original things that is cool that, that you guys because like you said it's a small community i'm sure people who sandcast stuff keep it keep yeah. a close eye on what other people are sandcasting it would be dope if you guys yeah, got into some uh bird deflectors of your own yeah. making you know you're, you obviously people already do them but you know, you come with your own design. I'd slap one of those fuckers on a Super E for sure. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yes. that's something we've thought about. Like, I don't know. Honestly, I think we just need to like run a competition of like, just tell us your ideas. Because that's like the hardest part is coming up with like cool original shit. Like the possibilities are endless. Like we can cast anything into a part, but creatively, I feel like I kind of hit a wall sometimes. Well, yeah. And it's like one of those things that you can't, you can't know what everybody's going to want, but it's so easy for people to say, do this, especially if you were to whittle it down to like five things and then you did like a vote for your favorite one and then you make whatever wins. You know, that people have tons of fucking ideas and all you got to do is 3D print that thing and throw that, throw that in the, uh, fuck, I forgot. In the sand. Yeah, I was going to say in the sand. I want to get the real name with the flask, throw that in the flask. Throw throw it in the, in the Petro bond. (laughs) The what? (laughs) The Petro bond is the name of the sand. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, the the bond is the oil bonded sand of the years. I see, I see. I, I end up getting hung up on details and like a constant quest for perfection. Um, so like we, we just, I told you I made a pattern board for our strap-on badges. There was a piece of tape on the back of the wood and on the back of the wood, that little piece of tape was starting to show through in my final cast piece. You could actually see the tape in the board. Oh, wow. So I had to sand that off. So, like, that's the level of detail that I strive for. And it drives me crazy if there's, like, a little defect somewhere or some little blemish. But to me, it's like, oh, wow, dude, that looks awesome. But I just beat myself up over little tiny things like that. Handmade. There you go. Yeah, slap the handmade on it. You're like, Listen, <laughs> I made this out of sand. So yeah. it's got to just appreciate it. It's made out of sand and old water pumps. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome, though. How much, how much, like, uh, after it comes out of the sand, like how many operations have to happen to this thing afterwards before it's done? I have the strap on badges in front of us that we poured today. Um, We run them through a bandsaw and we cut that gate off the gate. So the sprue runs into the runner and then the runner flows into the gate. The gate flows into the part. Now you cut the part off at the gate And now you have the gate runner and sprue attached all in one piece. That all just goes into a box and we remelt it. So it just gets remelted over and over and over and over again. So once you cut off, you cut off the excess and then uh, we run it through a belt sander, just touch off the edges. And then this part, for instance, the strap on badges would get powder coated and then we sand off the face, or we stamp them all. Then we sand off the face and polish them. And then they're ready to go. How much extra, like, so there's no extra on this on the, the edges, um, right? Because it, it's all getting poured into one side of the flask. So there's not like a, a, a seam where the two meet. 
Uh, yeah, on penis on penis pegs, for instance, have a big seam that runs right around the middle of them. So yeah, the penis pegs. The penis pegs are cast in half. So one half of the mold, and then another half of the mold, and they don't always line up perfectly. So you will see what's called a parting line in the penis peg specifically. Oh, but, is that what they call it? Yeah. <laughs> It's a big vein running right down the center. Yeah, yeah. You're like, we'll just leave that. That's actually not that accurate. <laughs> but you know, the strap-on badges and all the ignition covers are flat, so there's not a parting line because they're not cut in half. Gotcha. Okay, so those ones a little less uh, post operations have to happen with those. Yeah, it's it's called a uh, flash. Wow. A little extra material. So yeah, if you like, I don't know, if there's like cast plastic parts, they'll have flash. They can probably pick up any plastic toy or something like now, that. Pick up a G.I. Joe or a little green army man. Oh yeah, army man for sure. Yeah. You can still see flash on those things. But those oh, so are you'll cut, you'll cut yourself on those things. So plastic injection is essentially the exact same thing. But they have a metal machined mold that they squirt the plastic into. So if you pick up any of your kids' toys or anything around the house and look at them, you'll see a parting line. And that's the beauty of it, too, is we can take those toys and we'll bring them over here to the shop and, like, oh, we got to make a trophy for some yard game contest. And, like, let's just do the cast alloy version of this toy. And you can already see the parting line on it. So we'll just cast it in sand, carve out that parting line, cast the other half, put them together, and you're done. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's true. Because you literally, you already have your, uh, your negative. Yeah. We know exactly where the parting line is. So we know what the draft angles are. So if you can follow that parting line, you can copy trophy tops, Kids' toys, pretty much anything. So not to get too deep in the weeds on it here, but, like, what does the angle have to do with any of it? So the, the draft angle? Yeah. So basically, whenever you put something in sand, you want the fattest part of it at the top of the sand. God, and, and you mean, and that's... Like in the, the you want the fattest part in the top box, like the top half, or you just no, want like at, at the top level of the sand. So if you have a ball, you know the fattest part of it is right in the center. Right, so, so that's you have to split that right down the center and have the bottom half in the bottom and the top half in the top. That's your parting line. Got it. So, and that would be your parting line where the two halves of the box meet together. Now, so why is draft it a problem? Angle, why is it a problem angle, if it's bigger at the end? If it's bigger at the, further from the parting line, what, what problem does that cause? Out of the sand, and you pull, you break all the sand. Oh, so on these other ones, you don't break the sand in between each one. You, the sand stays. Yeah, even then, if if we had like our points covers have a little bit of a draft angle, so the back of the points cover is bigger around slightly 
than the front edge. So if, if, if they're like a quarter inch thick, that back face is slightly bigger than that front face. So whenever we pull it out of the sand, it doesn't break. Oh, I see what you're saying. So that you're not having to like dig around to pull it out. You you just have like so a- yeah. <laughs> if you like if you make a fist, you know the fattest part of it is like where your thumb is. So to cast a fist, the, a funnel. Think about like a funnel. If you set a funnel on a table, put a box around it, and filled it up with dirt, could you flip that box over and remove that funnel? Right, I see what you're saying. You'd, yeah, you'd destroy the sand trying to pull it the other but way. But now, yeah, the other way. Yeah, if you tried to pull it the other way, it would rip all the sand out. So all of our patterns have to come out clean out of the dirt. So they have to have a draft angle. I get it. So the whole the, the, the holdup for me there was I didn't realize that you didn't have to repack it regardless. I thought you had to pack it again every single time, no matter what. What do you mean? The uh, like when you said it's easier to pull it out without disturbing the sand, does that mean that like you don't have to repack that sand every single time you cast something in it, right? No, no, we do. If you pull it out and it messes up the sand. No, I'm saying um, if it doesn't mess up, if you pull it out and it doesn't mess up the sand, you can just do your next pour right then, right? Oh, no, 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 no. So once you pour metal into it, the metal is so hot that it actually cooks the sand. So the sand actually gets cooked every single time. And that actually leads us to the next step in the process, which is recycling the petrobond. So the sand actually gets burnt, burnt, cooked, crispy, and it turns into a fine powder. So you'll see a lot of people that scrape it off and, toss it aside but we actually built a what's called a muller a sand muller and it is built off a harbor freight cement mixer so this harbor freight cement mixer has a wheel in it and some other parts and it churns and flips and rotates and squishes and crushes and remixes the sand and then we reuse it so, so every time we pour a mold, we burn all the sand that's in contact with the aluminum. And then when we unmold it, you cannot reuse it. Like you can't just open it up and remove the part. Like the sand is toast. So then we dump it into this muller and the muller remixes and rejuvenates the sand. And then we just pack another mold. So... It just and again, I, I know I'm getting in the weeds, and I promise I'll I'll move it along after this this one here. But if you got to do that anyway, why does it matter whether you yank that funnel out backwards and ruin all the sand or not? Because um, then you don't have a form to pour the aluminum into. If the sand is all like blown out, yeah, you don't have a funnel shape in the sand anymore. Oh, I thought you were saying you dumped that shape out in between every one anyway. Well, we do. I mean, if it comes out, like if we pull that funnel out and it comes out clean, then we'll pour aluminum into it and, you know, destroy the same after we do it. But if we 
like practicing, practice funneling, and then pull it out the wrong way and disturb the sand, then we've got to restart. Then we got to repack it. Oh, oh okay. Greece. So they're talking about before they yeah, pour. Yeah, before, right, before you actually pour it. Yeah. I hear you. Got it. So the sand mold that we're making, when you remove the part, yeah, exactly as that sand looks is exactly how your part is going to look. No, I get so what you're saying. You got I some thought, sand that thinking, broke. Yeah, I was thinking post pour. I thought you were saying that uh, when you were removing the actual aluminum part, that you were trying not to break the sand. Oh and no, I, no, I didn't no, understand no, that, why it mattered. That just gets dumped. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, well, if you're dumping it anyway, who gives a fuck? It. I didn't. I yeah. couldn't wrap my head around. No, that's true. I get it now. Yeah, that's when the when the plastic uh, 3D printed part is in the sand. Got we got to carefully take a 3D printed part, or I mean, whatever it is. We got to carefully take it out of the sand so it doesn't get disturbed. And so if the edges break off, you know, sometimes you're like, fuck it, it broke off on like the very edge. So I'll just pour it and it'll flow into that broken off point, but I can easily cut it off and trim it in the bandsaw. Right. You could just sand that down. Yeah. Just yeah, as more, sometimes, as more sometimes we're like, yeah, fuck it. You know, this will be good enough. We can clean this up. And then sometimes it's like an important part in the center of the piece. And we're like, no, we do. So then we just dump it right back into the muller. Which is just running all the time and it just remixes the same. You just scoop it out of the muller, throw it back in the part, back into the flask, and repack it. Gotcha. How long does it take to repack this and like lay in that design again in between like each four? I think it, I think I'm down to about three minutes. It's three to five minutes per flask. And now with this new machine we got, I think I can ram up a whole flask in probably two minutes. No shit. Oh, so, probably less than that. Probably, <laughs> probably 60 seconds. I could probably... Honestly, once you get this thing cooking and... In the right place, and I don't have to go back and forth, I can probably do six flasks in probably five, ten minutes. So, yeah, that's, that's the other thing I was going to ask. You're not just, like, loading up, like say one at a time right like are you doing like multiples and then We're doing running. all your pours so he'll do typically six flasks per pour so if our crucible holds a half gallon usually six flasks of you know whatever it, it depends on how big the part is too like we made our own cast uh sledgehammers <laughs> so we have cast aluminum sledgehammers that we use for pretty much everything in the shop, but you know they they take a lot of aluminum, so you could probably only get two flasks out of that pour. I see. So it's limited by how much the crucible holds. Yeah, but or how much have, I fill it. Right. Do you ever have more than one points cover in a flask? Like you're pouring three of There's them. There's always. There's always two. Okay, gotcha. So we pour 12 covers at a time, and we pour 12 covers every 20 minutes. No shit. Oh, damn. Is that is That's that how long it takes for it to, like, 
Like when you pour it, how long are you letting it sit before you crack that open and peel it out? About three minutes. Damn, so that's pretty. That's a pretty good turnaround. Oh, no, 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 I mean the, the the sand. Once we pour the sand, we'll crack the molds open in three minutes. But once the foundry is on, yeah, we have to leave that on for about I don't know thirty minutes before the, okay. it liquid. Typically, once I, I can I can pour, reload the crucible, and then unload the sand and get them rammed up by the time the aluminum has melted again. The longest pour is the first pour. It takes about 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, depending on the temperature outside, like how quick we ramp it up. But um, once the foundry is up to temperature, it holds its heat. Like I have it cast in two hours, and I bet if you walked over and touched our foundry, it would melt your fingerprints off. Fuck. Jesus. That thing gets toasty. So do you even have to heat the shop? Yeah. <laughs> so we keep we keep the foundry it. outside. So um, carbon monoxide is a real bitch. <laughs> oh, I see. This thing would just fuck you up if you didn't have it's, it outside. It's propane powered. Yeah. So we actually have a Harbor Freight carport. It's like a 10 by 10 carport. And we parked it on the front. We built these like plywood skirts and everything that it basically fits our opening to our overhead door and we can open the overhead door without letting any wind in or anything like that. So we can have the foundry outside the overhead door and running with the carbon monoxide outside. And then we just crack the door open, run outside, do our pour, turn a fan on, blow all the smoke out into the little carport. And then shut the door and open them up and start the whole process over again. But you cannot oh, run shit. it inside; it'll gas you out. Got maybe it. No, natural gas is still carbon monoxide factories, man. Got it. So that's got to be outside somewhere. Yes. And how big is that? It is a Craftsman air compressor tank. I don't know how big that is. How big do you think that tank is? I'll tell you. I don't know, 18 <laughs> inches? 18 inches around? Yeah. And we cut it. It's probably 18 inches tall, and it has a 10-inch chamber in it. Oh, so this is a small thing. This is not like you can pick this up, right? Well, it weighs a couple hundred pounds. But like it's 18 tall, 14 in diameter. It's got two inches of kale wool and castable refractory cement inside of it. So there's about two inches of thermal insulation around the exterior of it. Got it. So this is a serious uh and then I built tank. it. It's got a little triangle base. You step on a lever which lifts the lid. The lift the lid probably weighs a hundred pounds. Oh. Well, probably not that much. But it's got a big hole in the middle of it. So you step on the lid, lift the lid, swing it open, and then the whole interior, all the concrete, everything inside of it will be glowing red. 
And it's wow. not concrete. It's a castable refractory that's designed to heat up to 2,700 degrees, I think. Yep. yep. We've ran it up to about 2,300 when we were doing aluminum bronze. Wow. That's fucking hot. Yeah, it was... Terrible. I wish I had like a frame of reference. <laughs> like I could pour it in the sand, and ten minutes later, it's still glowing red in the box. Like, how hot is like a how hot is a fire? Like, I have no frame of reference for like how hot that is. You know what I mean? Imagine like a roaring bonfire and like the bed of coals. You know when you get close to it and it wants to melt your face. Yeah, you just it just hurts to be around. That's it. about the temperature we're pouring, but we're picking that big old bed of coals up inches from our face and then pouring it. <laughs> yeah, do you have to wear like sunblock, or, or is it just heat? It has nothing to do with any of that. Long sleeves, big gloves, and a face Grease. shield. Chris, think of it like this: you know, like when you're cooking in the oven, yeah, and you're preheat, you're preheating the oven on like 350. When you open that door, it like fucking singes your face. Oh yeah, this add, is like add yeah, a thousand degrees triple. to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't wear anything on your face. I wear a face shield. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> Definitely good to have something at least. Yeah. You got you got to be able to keep your yeah. eyes open. And I think the clear plastic face shield is a little warm. <laughs> right, dude. I feel like a welding mask would be a good thing for that with a glass lens. But you got to be able to see. Yeah, I know, but they got auto view. They got auto dark. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be walking around with 1400 degree lava with auto darkening. <laughs> yeah, you got to trust yeah. that. Yeah. Do you guys know about uh, like if you have a hot fire on concrete, your concrete will pop? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so every once in a while, there's a little spill of aluminum and it fucking pops the concrete. And flings molten aluminum everywhere. Awesome. Uh, we'll have a little run out, and the run out will go out onto the concrete. And I'm just, if it's a big enough one, I'll be like, Timmy, duck. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> if I see it touch the concrete, I'm like, Because <laughs> it'll spall and it'll blow the top quarter into the concrete off. And when it blows, it takes that little baseball size puddle of aluminum and it throws it everywhere it's an explosion that's terrifying i can't believe four people don't get into sand casting (laughs) (laughs) there's a guy on there's a guy on youtube who has done like a bunch of dumb stuff he's i think he's only like a 15 or 16 year old kid he built a little backyard foundry and he's like, what about pouring molten metal on Orbeez and all this stuff? Oh, my God. Well, one time it was like, I'm going to pour it on molten copper on ice. And he's looking straight down on it with a camera that he's holding. And the block of ice explodes and sends all the copper, molten copper, right into his face. Oh, fuck. He's still making YouTube videos, but... Like, that's why you don't do that. So, yeah, if you have any, like, moisture, if there's any, like, specifically water moisture in or on your molds, like, you know, you can pour aluminum into, like, muffin tins 
But if you have a little bit of water in the bottom of a muffin tin and pour aluminum into it, that water boils instantly and expands and throws your molten shit everywhere. Yeah, one time. So I'm like, just assuming that anybody that does water. this doesn't have insurance. Because, <laughs> like, what kind of insurance agency is like, yeah, we'll cover that? <laughs> you can, I mean, you can get into this for cheap, man. You can make your own foundry out of a metal coffee can and pour refractory cement in it. And your crucible can be like a little piece of steel pipe that you weld the bottom onto, you know? So, nah. I think I'll just leave this to you guys. This is a great business to be in because nobody's going to try it. (laughs) A lot of people try it. That's the thing, though. But a lot of, well, I guess that's the end of it. A lot of people try it. Yeah, it's a good hobby, but not necessarily. No one is doing this. It's a business thing, but it's not a hobby. There are people, there are like Reddit forums and threads and there are entire websites dedicated to metal casting and there are a lot of really knowledgeable people out there but there are a lot of people that are just making stuff and there are even people in our industry that make stuff that just doesn't hold a candle to what we produce as far as like quality and right. I'm sure that, that you could take a lot of shortcuts in this kind of thing and uh, still make, still cast a thing, but to make the thing clean, it seems like you really got to get your, your gates and runners and sprues on point. And Absolutely. I don't know if everybody's going to take the time to whittle that process down. Yeah, and that's what we have done. So a lot of people will come out with a part and they're like, look how good this looks. And I'm like, that looks like dog shit. But, <laughs> but then people will make stuff that looks really good. It's like, cool, you did it once. Now do it a hundred times. And that's kind of where we Yeah, fuck that, it's man. Like, we're really good at making one thing a lot of times. Really good. And every one of them's the same. I'm really good at paying people like you to make good things. <laughs> there is one guy that was doing it for a while, and I'll name drop him because he's cool. We met him. But uh, Dixiana Co., Stephen Bate out of Alabama. Yeah. Oh, is this the dude that was making like the ones with like, the mushrooms and stuff on them? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He was I making the so, points but... guy with like mushrooms and all that shit. He was I in Born so. Free, wasn't he? Yeah, so he built uh, an a crazy like Yamaha thing for the People's Champ last year or two years ago. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, but he was making a yeah he was making points covers for a while, and he was doing a bunch of really like cool cash shit. And we talked to him for the first time at uh, Fuel Cleveland. I think it was two years ago, and yeah, we met him for the first time, and we were like talking about casting and stuff and he's like oh my god you guys are so far more advanced than me i'm broke as fuck i use play sand oh and you can do that huh <laughs> yeah so i mean you I, can there was just one guy there was just one guy that i i used to follow that used to like carve everything out of like i want to say like clay or something yeah yeah 
So people can do that. Yeah, if you carve things out of clay. Yeah, Crafty B, I feel like he <laughs> carves stuff out of clay a lot. Or wax. Yeah, so you yeah, carve it like, stuff. It was like then, this you know, dude that, like, I used to watch his videos all the time on, like, Instagram. He would just be, like, smoking a joint, drinking coffee, and, like, carving shit out of clay in his garage. And then that's what he would use to make his mold. That sounds like Stephen Bates. Bates. Yeah, that sounds like him. <laughs> yeah because i think i remember seeing his stuff and he was do i think he even did a a carb uh air cleaner with like a snake on it or something uh, or maybe i'm thinking of someone else but it it was definitely like a very diy kind of setup like the the pans were really small and it looked like it was all happening in a yard yeah but i mean yeah he was he was doing it and yeah, he was fucking, he was actually a little bit more advanced than us in some respects because he was doing stuff with cores. So he was doing like sodium, sodium silicate. silicate cores. And he made that Yamaha, whatever the fuck it was, uh, for the People's Champ. And he cast his own intake manifold for it. Wow. With, a, like, with, a, with a core. Yeah. Which so, we we haven't gotten into cores. It'd be like casting a tube, but the inside is sand as well as the outside. Yeah, and that's wild, dude. The core thing—I don't even know how. I'm just thinking about the part you said about not disturbing the sand as you pull it out, and I'm like, well, how the fuck do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> so we haven't even gotten into that. So I mean, we're more advanced than him in some respects, and then. He's more advanced than us in some respects. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, he, was, he was really he was really cool and cool to talk to. He, I feel like he doesn't do it much anymore. I think he had to go back to a day job and make some money. But yeah, he was a really cool dude. It was fun talking with him about sand casting, and he was like, "Oh fuck, I don't know. you got way more than me. Oh, I'm broke as fuck." <laughs> he did a lot of finishing. So you could you can make a part and then spend a few minutes finishing it, like That's sanding true. it or cleaning up your flash, things like that. What we strive for here is uh finished part out of the sand. Cut it off, maybe sand it, polish it. So there's really no cleanup. Everything that comes out of the sand, if you buy a part from us, it's Pretty much exactly how it came out of there. That's awesome. Oh, shit. And it's got to be, you know, if you're trying to do multiples of parts, you know, the, the less you have to do after you pull it out of the mold, the better. Yeah, if yeah. it takes you a minute or two to clean up a part and you got to do that 50 times, that's an hour right there. So if we can take that minute off and just make it like a deburger process, that's pretty much what we shoot for. So everything that comes out of the sand is basically deburred on belt sander and it's ready to go or ready to polish. Uh, so I'm assuming you guys don't just do casting though, right? Like, because you were saying before you made that boat motor stand and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So I'm, so I'm assuming you like any kind of fabrication. So, oh, yeah. So, so right in front of me, when you're looking at, uh, along with Dixie Anna's thing, uh, him and I were in the People's Champ together in 
2019, I think. So I started building a divorce sportster, a 2015 fuel injected divorce sportster that I still have not completed. But I cut the transmission off a 2015 sportster and built the whole frame out of 4130 chromoly. It's got custom trees on it, uh, CT Newman uh, wheel adapter with a weld racing rear wheel and car tire. Oh, shit. I forgot that he fucking put those out a little while back. Yeah. So I think I got one of the first ones. But it's got a. That's like running. What does it run? Like the Volkswagen wheel or something? What's that? Does that run like a Volkswagen wheel or something? Any wheel. It's like, yeah. It's a five lug car wheel. I think it's five on four and a half, which is a really common, you know, fucking Jeeps run five on four and a half. It's like four and a half or five. No shit. So yeah, I remember when we had him on the show, he was talking about that. Yeah, it's a really, really common bolt pattern. So it's like any wheel, pretty much. So what I currently have on the back of it is a weld racing um, magnum wheel, yep. which is the circle hole wheel that you'd see yeah. on the front of like a top fuel dragster. Yep. So it's a three inch wide, three and a half inch wide. Actually, I actually have that same wheel on my rat rod. The the front one? Yep. It's the front wheel off a drag car. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's on the back of the motorcycle. That's sick. So the, those are usually, those are pretty damn skinny. So you can still corner and all. It's not like when you're running like an actual car tire where it's like has that flat top. So you can't do anything yeah. but going a straight line. Honestly, it looks just as wide as like a 150 motorcycle right. tire. Yeah, no, it looks like a 130. Yeah, if not a 130. Yeah, that's super fucking rad, man. So we build the uh, frames, uh, fork lowers, yeah, handlebars. I mean, yeah, we didn't. And then we've got uh, fenders, aluminum, crazy Frank style fenders. Oh, no shit. Yeah, they're direct bolt-ons for rubber mat sportsters. Oh, oh fuck! You're really hitting the rubber mount that hard. <laughs> yeah, your 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 website has a picture of that, and I wasn't sure that that was uh, something you guys made. Yeah, yeah, we're still trying to iron out everything, like what taillight we want to use. But yeah, we're we're pretty confident that that's going to be something that we're going to produce in the future. Yeah, no, we don't want to. We don't want to buy your- someone else's taillight so we have to manufacture our own taillight well that's perfect you guys can just cast out a taillight we can cast out the body but we gotta have a company that makes the led driver board and because we don't want to spend our time you know led.com you can just buy that (laughs) (laughs) so once we get all that sorted we're good to go so are you doing, is like most of the stuff like handwork or like, what do you guys have for, do you have like machinery and stuff or what's the deal with all that? We have a full machine shop. <clears throat> yeah. Holy I mean, fuck. manual. Manual machine shop. So yeah, we got two lathes, a mill, uh, a hydraulic Harbor Freight press, a bandsaw. Damn, just the lathes and a mill, you're pretty much like can do anything. Yeah. Vertical bandsaw, horizontal bandsaw, portable bandsaw. <laughs> Our uh, cabinet. Our level of tubing bender. 
Damn, you guys ain't fucking around. There's a lot. I of heard shit. you say earlier you powder coated uh, some shit. Was that like you were? Oh yeah, yeah. That- yeah. So we right. just have a uh, our oven. That's another thing that we've been like trying to upgrade. So we just have like a Harbor Freight powder coating setup, and we're getting pretty good with it. And as long as a part can fit in a regular kitchen oven, we can powder coat it because that's Sick. what we have in our shop. We just have a kitchen oven out here. That's dope. I love that you guys like dabble in like fucking everything custom. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much we just like don't want to outsource anything unless it's like clear that like, you know, a CNC machine shop can knock a million of these out in right. a day. So we'll outsource that. But everything, yeah, still USA for sure. Like our our ignition covers are all cut we got this thing about accuracy and detail. So every one of our ignition covers is drilled on a rotary table on our mill. So they are guaranteed to fit. No shit. That's then, dope. What about like hardware and shit? Do you like make, are you making like all your own hardware and shit? Or are you just like, that's not even worth it. You just order like bungs and shit. Uh, for our, for our, uh, yeah, I guess for our, uh, highway pegs, we order, our pins from a master card. Yep. And that's one thing we may outsource. Yeah, because it's like sometimes you got to, like, we talk about it all the time. Like, sometimes you have to weigh those options. Like, is it worth me spending 30 minutes making this fucking bolt or should I just buy? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or it's, uh, we're made in America, but. I paid three dollars a piece for these pins in China. It was three cents, right? <laughs> and all these pins, man. And then that's the only part that's outsourced overseas. Stuff like that gets kind of complicated. Yeah, I think there was. I think it's like some percentage or greater if it's here that you can still put USA made on it. But uh, everything we do is one hundred percent USA made. Right here in Wichita. That's awesome. Then, also, yeah, we just <laughs> I don't know why Wichita is like whenever I hear somebody say Wichita, I just think of like cowboys. You have cowboys around there? <laughs> <laughs> no. A lot of airplanes. It's the air capital of oh, okay. Maybe that's it. Yeah. If yeah. You ever flown in an airplane, it was probably built here. Yeah, I've never been in an airplane. Do you have tornadoes <laughs> out there? We do. <laughs> Fuck that. See, that's the kind of shit I'm saying, man. Man. We don't have tornadoes in fucking New Hampshire. Well, I mean, actually, we've had a couple, but nothing yeah. like what you motherfuckers have. Yeah, you know what? You guys just get fucked. Here. You guys get it's fucked. You get, snow. you get snow and tornadoes. That is terrible. We don't get snow. Oh no, we got we get it sometimes, but it's always melting next day. It's perfect, yeah, man. Loctite, they we get, get all four beer. seasons, and they're all pretty mild. Yeah, I don't we know, got man. an inch of snow right before Christmas. So we had a white Christmas. We probably won't see snow again until February. Yeah, we haven't gotten any fucking snow yet. <laughs> I'm a big listen. I'm gonna say this: a lot of people are probably not gonna like it. I'm a big fan of global warming. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the past couple of winters, like we're not even like getting any snow until like mid February now. It's fucking amazing. 
before it would snow on Halloween when I was a kid. <laughs> you turn on a TV, no matter where you are, you, during the summertime, you probably hear about Wichita. There high record temps of 100, 114. We were over 100 degrees for like 40 days one summer. Holy fuck. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a fan of global warming. <laughs> I I love it, man. I love the nice warm weather. <laughs> I'm sure people in Buffalo right now wish they had some. Oh my god, those warm. poor motherfuckers! Are you fucking kidding me? You get a snowstorm, you just dumps three feet of snow. What the fuck? <laughs> just that New York life. Yeah, I mean, still, I'll take three feet of snow over fucking tornadoes, though. That's what people say, man. Like, like we had one that made pretty national news, I don't know, a couple months ago. Maybe in the in the summertime. It was in Andover, Kansas, just east. They hit a They hit a Y and like Kansas where Dorothy was from. And there was like this incredible drone footage of it. I'm sure like everyone saw it, but that tornado, like, none of us really cared about. We were all like, oh, yeah, well, crazy. Isn't I didn't Kansas where Dorothy was from? Like Nobody died, you know? So what Yeah, she was, she was from there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, dude, your state has a fucking movie about a little girl who gets sucked up in a fucking tornado. <laughs> <laughs> you know who has more tornadoes in Kansas? Texas. <laughs> Do they really? Texas is the tornado capital of the world. Really? It's That's like Kansas is, man. You just see like trailer parks getting sucked up and fucking. <laughs> Honestly, roofs going every which way. They got great hunting out in Kansas, though. Uh, there's some that is good. huge oh, deer yeah. in Kansas. There's census marshmallow thing has been popping out of but uh, I haven't really hunted in two years. Don't you? Can't you, you guys get like many, many deer out there? Like your tags per year. You can get one buck and five deer. Fuck, dude, that's amazing. Well, we can get five deer here. Yeah, but is that a... you'd have to get him. You'd have to buy like a whole bunch of different. <laughs> is that per season? Yeah. Or per general resident. Uh, per it depends, season, it depends on where you live, though. You'd have to live. You have yeah, to get your special tags. tags. The doe tags, you're allowed like one or two. A statewide, it might be three statewide, and then the other two are limited to certain units. Yeah, Tyler, yeah. Tyler will hunt uh, every season, so he has a muzzle loader, and he has a rifle, and he has a bow. So he'll try to get one every season. It depends. Yeah, on I, I bow hunt all three of those seasons. <laughs> yeah, over here you can do archery through all of them. So like you could fill your your rifle tag with a bow if you. Just wanted to do bow the whole way through. Yeah, ours is not well. We get a general resident tag, so like a buck tag or your first few doe tags. If you just buy them all general resident, you can hunt during any season with legal equipment. So, what's your average buck out there? Average? Yeah, like weight and like antlers. We got the biggest deer in the nation. It does look at like I think it's us and I I don't know. I'd say I don't know, ten point is probably 
Yeah, but how big is the tampon? Like, what's the spread on that looking like? The body wise, I mean, yeah. What size pants do they wear? We got, we got big. I'm saying like, like they're just eating corn and alfalfa all year long. Yeah, so yeah, and but like, are you looking at like 200 pound deers normal? Yep. Fuck, dude. Like that's does. a dude. That's does a giant year. Yeah, you should 200 pound buck here. You did really well. No, we have like does that weigh that. That's insane. So, do you know like what like the spread would measure? Like, are you looking at like 130 class deer? Measuring guy, but I would say 130 people pass on. Holy fuck, dude! It, so, hold, is it tornado season during hunting season? No, no, that's like right. spring, 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 spring early and summer. sometimes fall, but typically spring, April, May, June. Well, shit, boys, let's get a hunting trip together. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Come on out. It'll cost you $600 for a buck tag. Oh, my God. I'd pay it. I'd pay it to chase deer in Kansas. I'd pay about nine for 36 bucks. So is out of state really that fucking much, though? Oh, yep. yeah, sure. Dude, it's the wow. same thing in Montana, Illinois. Can you buy them over the counter in Kansas, or is it a lottery for out of state? That I don't know because I'm not an out of state guy. I think hmm. usually uh, like those usually those trophy gear players. Over the counter archery is always available. Um, rifle fills up fast. That's definitely the lottery. So right. a lot of people will put their eggs in one basket with muzzle loader. Because they can come out and hunt muzzleloader and then hunt rifle with their muzzleloader. Because oh, if you have a muzzleloader, you can hunt two seasons, but you can't hunt rifle with a rifle. You have to have a muzzleloader if you have a muzzleloader tag. Right, right. And then, What's honestly, the terrain that's, like? That's the way to do it. Because muzzleloaders these days shoot like fucking rifles. So it's like... Yeah, they absolutely do. You I can shoot well. 200 yards dead center with my muzzleloader. I always What's thought the it was terrain like though. Oh, go ahead. Like the, the terrain, the like is it possible to? Because obviously you got a lot of ag out there, but like, yeah. is it pretty possible to like be taking them with archery equipment or no? Absolutely. Like you got like nice woodlots you can get on and shit. It's all Kansas is almost entirely public or private ground. Yeah, but there are. Uh, walk-in hunting programs here in Kansas. Yeah, a lot of a lot of farmers will open up their fields. Like, oh yeah, I have this field way out there that pheasants keep eating. Yeah, fucking my shit up. So, so yeah, so they'll open it up and like register it on the walk-in hunting, and they get a tax break, and there's other benefits to it. Right. But like you so, have, yeah. like, Kansas this- is mostly private land, but there is still a lot of walk-on hunting areas, and we have tons of. But lakes. there's a good amount of woods, though. It's not all ag. All woods, yeah, and it's all nah. it's all woods that back up to ag. It's all right. It's all zone habitat or edge habitat. Everything is edge habitat. So the other question I got is. So, like, here, we have ag, but, like, nothing what you guys have. Um, oh, yeah. So, like, we, like, when we're setting up, depending on, like, whatever time of the year it is. If it's early season, you're going to, like, set up on the side of, like, a green field near some water. And then late season, you're going to be, like, in an oak flat because they're going to be feeding on oak. 
like the acorn and shit. Are they do they ever move into the woods to feed, or is it just like they're getting everything at that one stop shop in the ag fields? Well, deer are edge animals, but we have oak flats that border alfalfa fields with a creek in the bottom. So, so they are eating acorns out there flats, too. Yeah, so if you set up in some oak flats early season, um, you can catch them early. But if you just set up on alfalfa, they're going to come out of there. Is that you guys' biggest crop? Is like alfalfa and corn? Wheat. Uh, wheat. Wheat. Yeah. No, like it's, soybean or anything like that? Yeah, it's wheat, soybean, alfalfa. Yeah, soybean is like, that's like sorghum the one stop for a buck. Like, that's all the protein, all the everything they need. Sorghum and corn are more uh, Nebraska. Yeah, okay. Nebraska's all corn. They don't grow a lot of wheat up there. We grow corn down here, but we grow wheat everywhere because this is the climate for wheat. Right. Fucking eggs, that's so sick. During Sturgis time, we always like go through Nebraska and uh, my girlfriend and I kind of picked this route. I was like, yeah, this highway looks nice. And so we took like, I don't know, it's called Highway 14A up through Nebraska, off of I-80 through like Aurora, I think it was, Nebraska. But uh, it was all these cornfields and it was hot as fuck in August going to Sturgis. And we just so happened to like ride on this awesome highway that was all cornfields that were all being irrigated. And so there's all these giant, you know, sprinkler things, spraying mist all over the road. And so yeah, we picked like the coolest route we possibly could have. And so I think this summer was really hot and it was funny like going through Nebraska during Sturgis time looking at all their corn like wow man they're killing it like they're watering it like it's doing so good and then coming back home to Kansas our corn crop is like four feet tall <laughs> dead yeah. at the end of August <laughs> so are you got I'm assuming you guys are big pheasant hunters as well yeah not no. so much really <laughs> isn't your <laughs> state like the state <laughs> We're just kind of South uh, Dakota. Recent, we're kind of uh, agriculture guys, I guess, because our grandpa was a big farmer. So I think we just kind of pay attention to agriculture. I do anyway. But okay. no, I think we've only been pheasant hunting a handful of times. So Tyler deer hunts more than anything, and I don't really hunt anything. Okay. Fuck we just know about it. There Spend a lot of time outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> outdoors. That's why. What a great state to to be a resident of. I feel like that's the the golden ticket right there. Then you don't have to pay the high prices, but you still get to do fucking passing on two hundred pound does. And we're right in the middle too. So if we got some events we got to go to, we're about a thousand miles from you guys. We're about a thousand miles from LA. Right in the middle. About a thousand miles from South Texas. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, here in Wichita, Denver, Colorado is 600 miles. Dallas, Texas is 500 miles. Yeah, centrally located. You could pretty much do a road trip wherever you got to go. Oh, yeah. And 
We do. We rarely fly anywhere. I mean, as more specific, we've never flown anywhere. But I mean, my first flight wasn't until I was like 22 years old. <laughs> I had never been in an airplane until I turned like 22. Damn. So like, as a family, we would all, like, growing up, we would hop in a Suburban. Or, yeah, we had like an Astro van when we were kids, and we would always road trip everywhere. That's dope. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And quicker shipping. You ship that thing pretty much anywhere in the country. It's going to get there at the same time. <laughs> pretty much three day anywhere it goes. That is one of the, the benefits to being right in the middle. If you're not. Yeah, I see people from either coast be like, oh, it'll cost this much. But if you're on the West Coast, it'll cost this much. Exactly. Or it'll take forever. Yeah, we all got companies that we buy stuff from on the, the West Coast, and it's it just takes an eternity for them to get over here. So you guys don't got to fuck around with any of that. Yeah. So what's next for you guys here? What's uh, this coming year? What do you guys look uh, most excited about? Um, I think I'm most excited about this hardtail we're working on Forever Sports Series. Dude, that is going to be a game changer if you guys can get that thing out there. Yeah, and it's been long enough that we've seen a lot of people try and fail and fail it. But I mean, honestly, the dudes that are killing it and the dudes that are building good looking rubber mount sportsters are dudes in Indonesia. I don't know why, but for some reason, they can only get like rubber mount sportsters, it seems. That's because we sold all of them to over. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants them here, and so they're sending them all to Indonesia. But yeah, I have a whole like saved folder on Instagram for rubber mount sportster inspiration, and I'm like, all right, so this has been done before. This has been done before. And the idea that I'm kind of cooking up has never been done. It's totally unique and. I think it'll be like the best working, best looking rubber mount sportster hardtail ever made. That's awesome. Well, when you guys get that thing to market or even just before you do, we got to have you guys come back on and we'll do a whole episode where we go into the details and hype it up pre-launch or right after you guys launch. Yeah, that'd be awesome. For sure. Well, dude, it was awesome to have you guys on. Super cool to hear all about the sand casting stuff. I feel like we either talked a bunch of people into it or out of it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which one it's going to land on. We're going to find out when the comments come pouring in. But this was was one of my favorite episodes because I felt like the whole time I was genuinely curious about each step of the process because like i said not, people just don't know about it myself included yeah and i think youtube is a great resource so yeah if you're more curious about it now watch youtube videos on fucking backyard sand casting because honestly that's how tyler learned that's pretty awesome. much and then now you guys are all the way here doing it with 3d printers it's super cool it was 
really neat to hear the the come up of like how it evolved to what you guys are doing now and now stocking them on lowbrow and everything. So super, super yeah. rad stuff. It's big. What do we got coming up? We got uh Mama Tried. So my wife's bike will be in Mama Tried. Oh uh, shit, nice. What February eighteenth and nineteenth? She'll have her teal sportster there, the bison painted on it, and uh, it's got our fender on it. I was gonna say I saw that one. That's the one on the website with the brown seat, oh. right? Seats by Sandwich Leather, Kendra out of Portland. It's got a Slim's Fab oil tank on it. So we're changing it up. It's gonna get some polishing and new wheels kinds of neat little tricks in the next month that's awesome um, yeah that bike is is really nice that one I, I saw it on the the website there and super clean and that that fender is awesome like yeah. i said i saw that there wasn't sure if that was a something you guys made but yep that's our new build very excited to see that one come out too Breath bolt on rubber mounts courser we, we still don't have a name for it we should have a contest and like name this fender. <laughs> We've been called the Kooky Fred. I like that. The Kooky Fred Fender. <laughs> then we got uh, Texas Fandango down in Texas. We'll be there. Set up. Same spot as last year. Then we got OFR. Oklahoma Family Reunion is going to be in June at Call Lake on Osage Cove. I think in June. We haven't set the date yet, but that's always a good time. Yeah, you guys got a lot of stuff to look forward to here. Are you looking to bring some of the uh, set up like a little booth at these events too? Yep. So we'll be set up at all of those. So these are all our vendor events. And then Fuel, Fuel Cleveland is July, Cleveland, Ohio. And then we'll be up in Sturgis. A couple sportster shows in Sturgis this year. That's awesome. Busy year, man. Very cool. Yeah. And that's just the first half of it. So it just keeps going and going. Bigger and bigger. I love it. Well, super, super rad stuff on the horizon. Like I said, definitely let us know uh, when that stuff makes it out. And we definitely got to have you back on to talk about it. Absolutely. It's the only reason I haven't asked more questions about it already. Cause I'm like, I'll give you the time. I know it's a secret until it, until it gets produced. <laughs> and then we'll have all the questions when you, when you guys put it out. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Good stuff. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on. This has been awesome. And we will be we'll be in touch with you going forward. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right, guys. As we move to close this one out, just want to say again, big thank you to Tyler and Timmy for taking us through all the details on sand casting. Super cool to hear about that process. I've never talked to somebody who did it. And tonight we really got the whole fucking explanation. So 
Like we said in the show, you're either way more motivated to do this now or way less motivated. We hope you're more motivated. Give it a shot if it's something you wanted to do and uh, hit those guys up if you got questions. But before we actually close this one out, we got to thank some of the people who make the show possible. First up, we got Deadbeat Customs out there in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. Head on over to deadbeatcustoms.com and make sure you use code LOWLIFE at checkout to save yourself a couple bucks. Next up, we got Hypnic Jerk Customs out there in Sydney, Australia, making some of the dopest headlights, taillights, indicator lights, jockey shifters, and points covers. Hit him up on at Hypnic Jerk Customs on Instagram or hypnicjerkcustoms.com. Next, we got the homie John Luke at Stay Strong Co. Cooking up the dopest hot sauce in the motherfucking game. The only way to get yourself a jar is to shoot him a message on Instagram at Stay Strong Co. LLC. Next, we got Josh over at Steel City Blacksmithing, killing the smithing game. He's got all twisted everything. He does custom orders, and he's got that CNC machine up and running now, so the possibilities are endless. Hit him up, Steel City Blacksmithing on Instagram. Next, we got Ray's Hell Motorcycle Co., the homie Ben Daly, cooking up some custom work, full builds, a full merch line, and a whole lot more. Check him out at Ray's Hell Motorcycle Co. on Instagram. And last but not least, we got the homie Dan Bliss at No Luck Paintworks. If you need some custom paint laid down, hit up No Luck Paintworks on Instagram. Tell them what you've got. Tell them your ideas and see if you guys can get something painted so it is shining for the next riding season. Now that's it. I think we made it through to the end here. So to close this one out, I will say when you're packing a flask, watch your gates and runners because pounding sand twice isn't any funner. Keep that crucible glowing so that sprue don't stop going. And that's how you make a points cover. Too hard when really it's closer than it is too far. 